0: Thank you. friends, welcome to a new episode of Soul Kitchen. I'm talking to my friend Natalie Adele, who is a Kundalini teacher and embodiment guide living in Nozara in Costa Rica, which is one of the blue zones uh, in the world. These are places where people are really happy and live live long. Mm. How are you uh, Natalie today?
1: Uh, Jasper I'm so good it's a drizzly rainy morning here in Costa Rica so soaking it all up
0: that's uh, that's amazing and why did you choose to live in this blue zone of Costa Rica was that on purpose hmm
1: yeah so blue zones are places where centurions live where people live over a hundred years of age and so I think just by default the high frequency and energy of this place lured me in, whether I knew it or not. It's not like I was like, where are the blue zones? I want to live there. I think it just fully aligns. You know, there's so much vibrancy here. There's so much vitality and Shakti. And so it's it's a perfect fit. It, it fits
0: really well. You didn't make that decision with your mind, but you, it, it attracted you to the place.
1: Exactly. the The intelligence of my body, you know.
0: That's beautiful. And can you tell a bit more about your background, why did why you ended up in Costa Rica, your transition?
1: Mm. Yeah, so in a former life, I worked in the medical field and I was working as a nurse practitioner at a walk-in clinic and it was a very sterile environment and there were parts of it that I loved. I loved using my brain and my intellect. But I didn't love sitting at a desk all day and working in a room that had no windows or natural lighting. And so five years ago, my twin sister and I opened up a yoga studio, an embodiment studio, essentially, uh, an organic spa apothecary and yoga studio combination that had all this beautiful natural light, involved all the senses, and was just exactly what my body needed. And so that was a beautiful, thriving community for quite a while. And then COVID happened. And so two months into the pandemic, very early on, I intuitively knew that we were in this for the long run, collectively. And I heard this voice from Spirit that just said, it's time, it's time. And so we closed down our brick and mortar very quickly without overthinking it before we changed our mind. We sold everything and we packed up with our two dogs and moved to Costa Rica. And again, no thought, just following the guidance and really zero plan, zero plan. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> and where, where was this business located?
1: This business was located in Connecticut, so in the U.S. on the East Coast.
0: Uh, So you had this business with your twin sister. Did you take the plane to Costa Rica?
1: Yeah, so before we moved to Costa Rica, we actually traveled around the U.S. in our car. (laughs) We had a tent, we had our car, we had one suitcase and our two dogs and drove around the U.S. and really got to absorb everything that was happening in the States at that time. And then again, we just felt this divine guidance of it's time to go to another country. And Costa Rica was very clearly that country. And so we flew by, by plane with our pups cargo into San Jose and drove <laughs> all the way to Nosara, six hour drive.
0: And how is it, uh, because what is specific about your story is that you live with your twin sister, you do business with your twin sister. How, how is that?
1: Hmm. Yeah. So my sister's name's Holly. We're, we're identical twins. And when we had our studio back in Connecticut, we were very energetically fused. We made every decision together. And then outside of work, we spent so much of our time together. And so when we moved to Costa Rica, it was really valuable and important for us to intentionally individuate unwrap and untangle our energies I actually say twin individuate <laughs> as a twin and so since we've been here we have not uh, collaborated in terms of business and we're really paving our way as our own sovereign individuals and allowing ourselves to feel like a lot of times when you're a twin you can feel a part of a, a, part of a whole you know instead of your own whole And so we've been moving through this process of just really owning our individual gifts and strengths and offering that. So Holly, my sister, is a Tantra teacher. I'm an embodiment coach and Kundalini teacher. And they're so similar, right? There's so much overlap in the two. And eventually we'll collaborate and co-create again. But we're still in this process of really discovering who we are as individual women.
0: So you have moved together, but you've also been in an individuation um, process. I yeah, think that, um, that's interesting. Yeah, when you're when you always do everything together, that must be um, um, yeah interesting experience. And mm. tell me more about kundalini and embodiment. Like, what is this all about?
1: Uh, it's such a great question. <laughs> it's such a great question. You know, because I forget sometimes that. This isn't necessarily a common word, so we'll cover kundalini first. So kundalini um, in Sanskrit translates to coiled light, coiled light, kunda, coil, lini means light. And so what the kundalini is, is it's a coiled up light, which is an electromagnetic force that sits at the base of our spine. A lot of times you may hear it referred to as like serpent energy or snake energy, again, because it's coiled. So think of a snake that's not moving. It's coiled up in a little ball. And so the kundalini, again, it's an electromagnetic force, holds prana. It holds light. It holds electricity. So think of it kind of in a way like your Wi-Fi router. It's the source, right? It's the hub of your Wi-Fi. And so often we have a very dormant or stagnant kundalini, and that's through lack of awareness of what the kundalini is, it's through lack of prana or deep breath or or life force moving through us, and it's through stagnancy in the lower body, sitting all day, right? And so what we do in kundalini yoga specifically is we do postures that are repetitive. We do breath that's repetitive. We use the vibration of mantra to start to waken up this kundalini at the base of the spine. We start to waken it up through friction of our yoga practice. And what does it do? It starts to waken up and move up the spine, the central channel of the spine. So it's a, again, it's like turning on your router and all of a sudden in the kitchen, you have Wi-Fi in the attic, you have Wi-Fi and this Wi-Fi connection in our body is like your radiance. It's your vitality.
0: And what is the main benefit for people to, to awaken this energy mm. in daily life?
1: Yeah. So people who practice Kundalini yoga on a regular basis, breath work on a regular basis, they have magnetism. They're radiant beings. And so it's it's palpable, but maybe not specific. So when someone walks into a room and you notice them right away, it has nothing to do with the way they look, what they're wearing. It's their radiance, whether we realize it or not. And so the benefit of practicing Kundalini is increasing your magnetism, your vitality, your radiance.
0: So it has to do with... Um being a magnet to, to to other people in a way and, and being radiant. Does it also have to do with something with, with sexual energy or is that a different story? Mm, that's a great question.
1: So yeah, so life force is life force and sexual energy is a life force. And the Kundalini, because it resides in the lower energy centers, the lower chakras, when we start to work with our sexual energy, especially with intention, it will start to mobilize the kundalini. You know, think about the hips, right? The hips. When we move our hips, we start to work and wake up that kundalini, that sexual energy. And sexual energy is so powerful. Kundalini is so powerful. And they're deeply connected. And depending on what philosophy you're studying, people will say they're the same. You know, if you're thinking of Taoism, they might be viewed at a little bit differently, Jing versus Qi. You know, in Taoism, Jing is sexual energy, Qi is life force. And so ultimately, they all end up residing in the same space.
0: So if I understand it correctly, sexual energy, life force are all connected. And it helps people to be more radiant, to to be more vital, like vitality, etc., (laughs) how um explain me more within yoga there are different streams why would people pick this like type of yoga and not other yogas or should you combine it Mm,
1: totally great question so i believe that a combination of other yoga practices that are more physical is beautiful to combine with kundalini so kundalini is working more on the energetic realm the subtle body Right. And so I like to use the analogy of like a computer. So when we work with other types of yoga, yin yoga, restorative yoga, ashtanga, power, vinyasa, we're working with the hardware of our computer, the actual physical laptop, right? The keyboard, the mouse, the things we can touch. That's very valuable and important, you know. When we work with kundalini, we're working with the software. We're working with the virus programs. We're working with the Wi-Fi connection. We're working with the operating system, right? I often refer to Kundalini as the human operating system. You know how our Macs ask us for upgrades all the time. When we practice Kundalini, we're doing those upgrades regularly. Both are important, right? Because we could practice Kundalini and get the energy moving. But if there's blockages in our muscles and in our joints, the energy prana can't get in.
0: I like that. So you need to work on, on the hardware and the software at the at the same time. So that's within yoga. But if we zoom out, there are also other ancient practices like breathwork and meditation and, and dancing. Mm. So do you recommend that people try all these things or do they need to choose? Because sometimes this landscape is so fast, that it's mm. very hard to understand where to start or which one to pick. Totally.
1: Yeah. Well, all those practices that you mentioned, dancing, breath work, meditation, they're all part of kundalini. Sometimes in a kundalini class you might break out an ecstatic dance. Absolutely every single class involves breath work. It's a huge vital part and every class involves meditation. So this is what I love about kundalini is it's very efficient with your time. So for those of us who are like entrepreneurs, working moms, you know, working dads, they call kundalini the householders yoga which I don't particularly love that term. It feels very old fashioned, but what it means is the barriers to entry are very low and it's very time efficient. So in just a few moments, in just a few practices, you're covering breath work, you're covering meditation, you're covering mindfulness, you're covering the body in just maybe three minutes, you know?
0: So it's, it's a combination of all these elements and is it, did I understand it correctly that they call the yoga of awareness?
1: Yeah, Kundalini is oftentimes called the yoga of awareness. It's called the householder's yoga. It's the yoga of angles and triangles. There's so many different names, but yeah, the yoga of awareness. Because again, it's dealing so much with our subtle body. And so to even tune into the subtle body, and by that, I mean your energy, your emotions. Where does the breath feel stuck? we need awareness to even understand that part of us to even have that conversation with ourselves, Right. So it requires mindfulness. It requires awareness.
0: So what is awareness in your definition? Because on the one hand, I feel that I understand it, but sometimes I feel I can't fully grasp it. Mm, mm.
1: Well, I would say even knowing that is awareness, right? Even knowing that, On the one hand, I can grasp that. And on the other hand, I can't. That's awareness. It's just knowing, understanding, feeling where you're at in this moment. So you could be aware that, oh my gosh, I drank too much coffee this morning. I feel super stressed. My jaw is gripping. That's awareness. You're in tune with your physical body. You're in tune with the racing mind. Awareness doesn't mean that you're in a meditative state and you're totally blessed out and the body is relaxed. Awareness is the inner attunement of your body, your mind and your energy and your emotions. Does that make and, sense? Why,
0: and why does the, does it matter? So maybe someone that is listening, why would it matter for this person to become more aware?
1: Mm. I would say awareness of self allows us to understand if the things that we're doing in life, the practices that we're doing, the work that we're doing, is making a difference to us in our inner landscape. So if you drink that extra coffee, or you sleep those few extra hours, or you infuse a new yogic practice into your life, without awareness, we're just mindlessly moving through the patterns and the motions But awareness allows us to feel the sensitive creatures that we are. When I'm with this person, I feel contracted. Mm, When I enter this space, I feel relaxed. So we can really start to fine tune our senses, our energy senses, our attunement, to understand how we react and relate to the world around us. And the more we have self-awareness, the more we can be compassionate. Right? Because if I'm not even aware of myself, how's my body in this moment? How's my breathing in this moment? How are my emotions in this moment? If I can't tune into that, I'm not going to be able to understand somebody else's experience. And that's compassion, right? So we start with mm, awareness of the inner landscape, feeling ourselves, and then we can start to understand other people. Ooh, they feel a little contracted. Mm, right. So this is compassion.
0: So you become more compassionate towards other people, which is, of course, important. Does it also Im- improve your own quality of life? Is that what you're also saying? Mm,
1: absolutely. So to to go back to your question before about embodiment. When we become more embodied and what I mean by that is we are actually here, present, home. The lights are on. Right. Our senses are involved we're living not just out of our head but out of our heart and out of our intuition when we become more embodied it allows us to experience life more fully right we can smell things we can taste things we hear you right i feel you i feel myself and so that allows us to experience life more fully now here's the thing when we live in a world that's frantic chaotic when we have an inner landscape that has trauma that might be painful, we don't want to necessarily experience it more fully, right? Because there's stories there, there's pain, there's trauma, there's drama. And so a lot of times, whether we realize it or not, we become disembodied so that we don't have a deeper experience of life.
0: Mm-hmm. right? So and, people are hiding from their own past, maybe sometimes.
1: Yeah. Whether, whether it's, uh, realized fully or not. And so we're creatures that live in a world, again, that's frantic and painful sometimes. And so from a young age, we learn, "Mm, life's more comfortable when I'm not inhabiting my body, right? Mm -hmm. Life's more comfortable when I'm actually making every decision from my mind, because I have control over the outcome. And so becoming an embodied person takes courage, because you're more seen. people see you. Right with that radiance, people see you more, which can be scary. And ah, let me dial it in, you know.
0: So, it takes courage to stand into your own light more.
1: Absolutely.
0: And, you at a personal level, have you always been an embodied creature, or did it come more when you switched from being a nurse to running that yoga studio? Or how did it mm-hmm. happen?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Well, I just think, you know, from a soul and Dharma perspective, embodiment is why I'm here. It's why I've been put here on this earth. And from an astrological perspective, I have Taurus and Cancer in my chart, which are nurturing and home. And Taurian energy is very embodied and involves the senses. So we can see it's really written in the stars for me. Um, And from a young age, I've moved around a lot. So I was born in England, moved to the United States when I was eight after that, we moved like every year. And so moving homes and my external environment really highlighted the importance of finding deep connection to my body, which is why I love working with nomads, digital nomads. Because when the external is fluctuating and changing, if we're embodied, wherever we go, home is there. Home is right here. you know. And even in my field of nursing, there was deep embodiment there. I was working deeply with with people's bodies and, you know, through illness and disease. And it allowed me to find a deeper space of compassion because I was self-aware.
0: So because you moved a lot when you were younger, you had to be embodied to find your home in yourself.
1: Mm, Exactly.
0: um, You said it's your dharma uh, to work in this field of uh, embodiment. So why are you so passionate about it um, to also teach this to other people?
1: Mm. Mm. I would say for myself, I I know what it feels like because I've done this so often of my life when I was studying in grad school and things to operate solely from the head brain, rational, fear based, logical, complete disconnection from the body, finding ways to numb out drugs, alcohol, tobacco, uh, social media, right? I've experienced that. And what it feels like to be disembodied. And as I've moved into a space of embodiment. I'm like whoa. This is what it feels like to be grounded. This is what it feels like to feel the earth beneath my feet. And my body. Which is why yoga was so beautiful for me. So to be able to share that with others. In ways that are super simple. You know like. You don't need to do that hour and a half yoga class. Like four times a week. To become embodied. You know and so I feel that offering ways that are very accessible because let's face it we live in a modern world it's digital I think I, yeah I heard in your last podcast that 25% of people are going to be working remotely at the end of this year it's Crazy, you know? right? it's crazy so it's like I used to own an embodiment studio I had face-to-face time with people but it's like okay how can we shift into a space where people are practicing yoga online, they're working online, they're using apps to meditate. Okay, let's meet you in that space of the digital realm, you know? And these practices are are a technology. Yeah. Kundalini yoga is technology.
0: So before COVID, you worked at a physical space with people. Now you're shifting more towards serving people online. But also due to COVID, more people are now working remote. So yeah. what type of... Um, Uh, challenges do you see people have? You already mentioned a few addictions. Mm. Can you maybe elaborate on that and also give specific examples?
1: Yeah. So we live in the digital age and we are simultaneously connected so easily, yet we've never been more disconnected. Why? Because my avatar is connecting with your avatar. My soul is not connecting with your soul so often, right? And the soul is translated through the physical voice, through physical touch, through awareness. And so as a society, we are more depressed than ever because we are disconnected, disconnected from self, disconnected from others. And it, it leads to what I refer to as emotional bankruptcy, emotional bankruptcy. Like so often we communicate through emojis, I communicate that I like what you're doing by double tapping your photo, instead of saying, ah, oh, man, Jasper, I see you, like really beautiful work that you're putting out into the world, right? Using my voice and my heart. And so we're emotionally bankrupt. We're numb, we're dissociated. Because of the fact that we're working at our devices all day, the breathing becomes shallowed and our nervous systems are fried. And because our nervous systems are fried from technology, from caffeine, from social media, we are operating from a space of lack of safety in our body. Whether we realize it or not, we're swimming in stress hormones all day, every day, and we can't sleep. And then we fuel ourselves throughout the day with external sources. And it's a vicious cycle And so I would say overall, and again, there's no judgment here. It's just an understanding of what is. We're emotionally disconnected. We're physically disconnected. And that has a massive impact on us as a society, as humanity.
0: I I see. And this emotional bankruptcy, what what do you see as the larger problem of that at scale?
1: Mm, I would say with emotional bankruptcy, what ends up happening is we forget we forget that we're human that we have feelings that others have feelings that we are not artificial intelligence right, right? and so a result of that is lack of compassion for self and others yeah you know?
0: so we're digitizing the the human experience in a way we're technologically connected but we're <laughs> we're less connected in, in in real life i think that's uh that's a great statement of the of the problem. And can you share um, one or two or three examples of people that you work with that you don't have to mention their names, but like, who are they? Where do they live? What challenges do they face? Mm, Great question. (sighs)
1: So one client specifically comes to mind. He's a very successful entrepreneur, is a bridge designer, civic engineer, very busy. From the moment he wakes up to the moment he goes to sleep, his phone is on. He's available. It's a lot. He's also a golfer. So that's like his happy place, you know. But when we started working together, it was mainly to improve his golf swing. (laughs) But what ended up happening over time is he realized, ah, I'm finding peace. I'm finding a sense of peace within Throughout my day, I'm finding my boundaries are stronger. I'm finding I'm more efficient and productive. And we did that through yoga and breath work. And then ultimately, his nervous system started to rewire, you know, and his boundaries, his sleep improved. And of course, his golf swing improved. We put that in there. (laughs) So, you know, starting with what felt like, okay, I'm coming to you to improve something very clear and direct. Ended up becoming so much more than that, you know. Increased efficiency, improved boundaries, and more inner peace, which is even more valuable, I think, than than a golf swing. You yeah.
0: know, I like I like that example uh, about the the, uh, the busy entrepreneur. I was mm-hmm. at Mind Valley recently, and the founder of Mind Valley developed a meditation that combines happiness in the now with vision for the future. And he says that a lot of entrepreneurs are so focused on the future that you're in constant stress and anxiety because you forget like the the, the groundedness in the in the now. Mm. So that's the busy entrepreneur. Can you give another example of someone and and what challenge they face?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, one client I'm working with currently is in the process of moving from one coast of the states to another, and she's taking that leap of faith, of, you know, exploring the unknown and also starting her own business venture. And so our work together is really focused on grounding, you know, really shifting the energy into the lower three chakras, the root for safety, the sacral center for creativity and the solar plexus for empowerment. And so what's been really great is we've taken these embodiment tools with her on the road, which is why I love working with people who travel. I've done it myself for so long that I realized the value of really simple, I call it pack your practice, really simple things, physical things that you can bring with you to set up an altar anywhere you go, any hostel you travel to, any tent you camp in, little things that you can bring with you to set up sacred space wherever you are. Again, this concept of finding home wherever you roam, finding practices that you can do from your car right? We, you and I went through a whole hour long practice together from your chair before we started this podcast. So you don't need that local yoga studio to plug into. You don't even need your yoga mat. You can just really be sovereign in your self-care practices. And so I love working with people to really find safety in their nervous system, safety in their body, consistent, easy self-care practices so that when they're traveling, their root feels secure, even when they're being propagated and uplifted somewhere else you know
0: so it's really about when you travel that you find you kind of pack your sacred space and you unpack it when you arrive
1: exactly exactly i've had clients who set up an altar on the dashboard of their car
0: Mm. so i find it difficult when i move places there's a certain mental shift that i don't go to a gym or that i forget about the routine Uh, Which is a bit silly because there's a gym everywhere and I can do routine everywhere. So what's the psychological reason that when you travel that for certain people, that's more challenging Mm. for people like me?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a barrier. It's a barrier to actually getting it done. And and one of my teachers says the best way to do something is to do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's very wise. (laughs)
1: leave it to the kundalini yogi sages to just have like this profound thing. That's so simple that you're like, wait, am I missing something here? It's so simple, but it's like, so often we can fall into, and I don't love the word victim, but sometimes we can fall into that victim mentality of like, Oh, I'm traveling for work. Oh, I'm super busy. Oh, I'm on a road trip. I can't get it done. But it's like, this is where sovereignty comes in. And so much of what I teach with these simple practices and, and rituals is, Sovereignty and self care. And I learned this personally when COVID happened and all the yoga studios closed. In the beginning, I had this dialogue of, I can't practice, but it's like, no, but I want to. How can I make it work? You know? And so, what's so beautiful about when you learn simple practices for the road is like, now, let's say you are anchored in, in a hostel for a month let's say you're back home to the hub of your community for six months or whatever that looks like doing your practices then feels even easier because you've flexed the resilience muscle. You've reflect, you've flexed the flexibility muscle of this is a priority for me and I'll make sure it happens no matter where I am. You know?
0: That's great. So I, I hear heard a few pieces of wisdom. So one is the best way to do something is to do it. It makes uh, a lot of sense, especially for health and fitness-related topics. And then you mentioned sovereignty and self-care. Self-care, I understand, but can you specify the the sovereignty part?
1: Yeah, absolutely. To me, when I think of sovereignty, I I feel that it means I'm not relying on others to access something. And so that made me look like I'm not relying on others to feel happy. I'm not relying on others to feel safe. I'm not relying on validation from the outside world. I'm not relying on this yoga studio to offer me my yoga practice, although it can be a beautiful supplement. And so sovereignty and self-care is going to look different for everybody. It's going to look different for everybody depending on what self-care looks like for you. For me and for a lot of my clients, it looks like deep breaths, connecting to radiance and magnetism and finding safety within. So how can I do that? on my own. And so let's take coffee for an example. And I drink coffee, don't get me wrong, no judgment. But when we reach for that caffeine, we're reaching for something outside of us to feel a certain way. I'm reaching for that coffee to charge up my PowerPoint presentation for the day, right? We're externalizing an internal experience. What would sovereignty look like? It would look like I'm going to do three minutes of breath of fire and source within to the abundant resources that i already have accessible to me to feel charged up
0: I've, i really like that uh, explanation so you don't come up with excuses like there's no yoga studio there's no gym so you you take the responsibility yourself you try to find that strength within for instance through your breath or meditation instead of a, a coffee i mm-hmm. think that's um that's brilliant so Maybe I'm interested like um, you've had a yoga studio before where you had a physical offering. Now you're moving towards an online uh, offering. So what are you going to offer to uh, to people uh, that might be listening? How can they work with you? How does that look like?
1: Mm. Yeah. So moving to the digital space is just great because I'm meeting clients where they're at, which is the digital space and I'm showing them this can work right where you're seated at your desk. And so I've just released a um, four-week one-on-one coaching journey, which will eventually turn into a group coaching journey, but I'm really fine-tuning it with the one-on-one, and it's called Unplugged. Unplugged. And so this is kind of working with this whole digital aspect, right? And and let's not forget, your nervous system is electric. It's an electrical system, just like your Wi-Fi router, right? And so the concept with Unplugged is to disconnect from the numbing agents, from the media haze, from the technology, from the frantic frenetic energy that's all around us. We unplug from that disconnect so that we can plug into our own peace, our own serenity, Mm -hmm. our own sense of calm, the, the original matrix, right? The original matrix of Pachamama, of the <laughs> air, of the sky. This is the original matrix and we can plug into it anytime we want.
0: So you're unplugging from external factors, plugging into your to yourself. Exactly. Think, uh, that, that's a beautiful idea. And why did you choose the length of a month?
1: For me, it feels very accessible. Okay, so if I think about A lot of people that I'm working with are probably high-level entrepreneurs, or they're working quite a bit. Maybe they're creating a business. What I don't want to happen is, ooh, I can't commit to three months. That feels overwhelming. That's not for me. So what I love offering are things that are accessible, realistic, and that the barriers to entry are very low, right? This is why I love teaching Kundalini. It's all three of those things. And so a four-week container, four weeks, four calls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That feels much more realistic for me. And then, of course, down the path, we could talk about what it would look like to work together for longer periods of time. But my mission over the next few years is to serve as many people as possible. And so a short container feels like a great way to do that. It's a great um, point of entry to yourself and to working with me.
0: I can understand that it's uh, more accessible. And if you look at habit change, I r- I, I read a book about habits, but I, I forgot uh, <laughs> to be honest. So what's your vision on how long it takes to change a habit?
1: Well, research shows it takes an average of 66 days to change a habit. So we're looking at about two months. We're looking at about two months, right? <laughs> and so... In our one month of working together, the idea is you're going to have tools that are replicatable and you're going to rewire your nervous system from a place of stress to a place of safety. Because at the end of the day, forget the 66 days, forget the habit even. If your nervous system is stressed, it's very challenging to install a new habit. Why? Because when the nervous system is stressed, it's in survival mode. And the last thing your body wants to do when it thinks "do or die" is implement a new habit.
0: <laughs> I see. I see. So you you need to be in a stressless kind of uh, way of being to change a habit.
1: Exactly. Ease, calm, grace, safety from a biological neurological perspective, and then the body says, "Okay, we're we're good." Like. All right, bring it on. Let's yeah. let's let's do this new meditation practice and let's stick to it. You
0: know, yeah. yeah. No, I, I I see that you can't do everything at the same time when you're like so busy or stressed. I also want to know, like, at a daily basis, how do you lead your day? Because yeah, how you spend your days how we spend our lives. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that leads to an embodied life. Can you give a few specific? Mm-hmm tips? Uh,
1: it's such a great question. It's such a great question. And, and for me, what I've realized is it's, it's been an evolution. It's been, you know, three years ago, let's look at this. I owned an embodiment studio and I wasn't fully embodied. And, and, you know, this is, there's, this is why I'm on the path that I'm on so I can learn it first and foremost. And, and my morning practice used to look like, you know, lathering up a couple slices of toast with some jam, grabbing a coffee, reading poetry and then out the door now morning time is the most important time for me and so i would say for people who are listening to this that are busy and they're like wanting to implement a morning ritual and an afternoon ritual and an evening ritual start with the morning start with something that becomes non-negotiable and so for me what that looks like step one i don't touch my phone for at least an hour usually two You know, which means I may have to wake up a little bit earlier if I have a meeting or a client call and other obligations. But I keep my phone on airplane mode and I keep it out of my bedroom. That's step one. And it's huge. That stops me from waking up. And before I even pee, I'm scrolling social media, checking the news, receiving input. That's not healthy, right? And so my morning times are sacred, they're without a phone. I make a cup of holy basil tea. Holy basil is an adaptogen. And it's going to calm down the nervous system. And then as I sip on that, I do my morning practice. And it looks different every morning. But the intention is to get into my body. I burn some sage. I have an altar. I burn some sage. I use aromatherapy. Aromatherapy turns on the body. It activates the imagination. It gets prana flowing. And then I'll usually body brush, you know, for 10 minutes. I use a loofah. And do the body brush, sip on my tea, keep on smelling the aromatherapy, drink lots of water. And even if I don't do anything else, I feel really freaking good after that.
0: Mm. You know? So the morning is really important.
1: The morning is so important. And so morning's gonna look different, but again, non-negotiables are digital detox, a big glass of adaptogenic tea, and s- some engagement of my senses. Now, of course, then that usually leads to, I do a Kundalini practice. I do a meditation. I walk my dog barefoot outside, you know, all these other things are valuable, but the most important thing is, is I start my day in my senses, in my body throughout the day, especially as I'm working on a computer, I simply weave every hour breath into my day. And so I set a timer on my desktop because You know how it goes when you're like knee deep in the inbox, like three hours goes by, you know? (laughs) And so every hour my timer goes off. And what does that mean? That means I take a few deep breaths. I notice my body. I do some of the practices that you and I did together, right? Rolling out the neck, moving the spine, getting up, taking my dog for a walk every hour. So it's all about weaving what I call pockets of peace throughout your day. So that come the end of the day, you don't feel tweaked, fried, overwhelmed, irritable, inaccessible. Because what I notice is the more disembodied we come throughout the day, when it comes time for us to enjoy the day and go for a sunset walk or a surf session, we could be so disconnected that we're not even fully able to appreciate it. You know? I like
0: that you say the, the pockets of peace. I recognize with the inbox, you can, whenever you send something, you get something back, even on WhatsApp. So it can take a lot of your time and energy. Mm. I like that pockets of peace and that the morning is so important. Do you also have an evening ritual or is it really connected to the morning?
1: Yeah, evening is very important. And I find that evening is more variable for me, depending on whether I'm hanging out with my partner, with friends, whether I'm solo, how's my energy body? But what remains consistent in the evening is once again, going back to digital detox. So what I do in the evening leads into the morning, right? So at night, usually around like 8.30 p.m., I'll turn my phone onto airplane mode. I'm not available, okay? I'll turn my phone onto airplane mode and I'll put it in a drawer. And so now we can see just by doing that, my morning practice has already started, right? Mm -hmm. I'm really creating that sacred space time. It's getting me off of devices and screen time and things like that. And then in those few hours, hour, two hours, I'll read a book. I'll do a guided yoga nidra practice. I'll allow myself to find boredom and see what comes up in that space, you know?
0: So the digital detox starts in the evening and then you start creating a sacred space that runs until the, the morning.
1: Mm.
0: I, um, I start to see the, the, the picture, the pockets of peace, digital detox, morning practice. These are all in, uh, important. Mm. And now I would like to know more. Earlier in the conversation, we talked about the blue zone, which mm-hmm. is a macro phenomenon in, in Costa Rica, in Japan, certain <laughs> people live long lives. And then your day-to-day life, as we talked about. So what is the influence of living in this blue zone on you applying these practices on a day-to-day basis?
1: Mm, That's such a great question. Well, I mean, notice on our call right now, I'm sitting outside. I'm sitting outside and in front of me is all green jungle canopy. Yeah, I have plants all around me. I'm sipping on high-quality filtered water. These are all things that because I live in the jungle, they're easy to access. And I've chosen this life, right? Every Tuesday, I go to the farmer's market. I ride my bike to the farmer's market and I have an abundance of organic food. And in that space, I connect to community. So a huge part of Blue Zone Living is obviously environment access to clean air, filtered water, connection to the land. And a huge part of it is community. They've studied that people who live in blue zones that live the longest are living amongst community They're living with their family members they have their neighbors close by that they connect with they have social and emotional support and where I live here in osara it's it's like the old days you know you've got the person to get this from and the person to get the massage from and the person who makes organic cacao and this beautiful web of people mm. Another thing that makes a blue zone a blue zone is they found that it's people who are using their bodies to do work, right? And that may look like working on a farm, you know, using your body uh, in the way that it's designed. And so for me, I ride my bike to go teach a yoga class. I swim, In the ocean I walk my dog on the biological reserve I move my body I don't have a gym membership and there's nothing wrong with Mm. gym memberships you know Uh, but I'm using what I've been gifted to experience the world that's around me
0: so I hear uh, good climate access to fresh air and water community embodied living I also read that in this Japanese blue zone when you're on your ikigai so you're living your purpose that you also live longer? Is that something that you notice in, in, for instance, the Nosara region?
1: Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And so if we think about the energetics of it, if you're eating clean water, if you're using your body, if you feel supported by community and nature, then there's less fear to be yourself. Why? Because you have more energy. Remember, you have more radiance. And remember I said earlier in the conversation, it takes courage to be magnetic. It takes courage to live on purpose and follow your ikigai. And it's easier to do that when you feel safe, supported, loved, and radiant, you know.
0: So it looks like too good to be true. So I'm also curious, like, what are the barriers for people uh, to live in a blue zone? Is it expensive? Is it, like, beyond people's imagination? What are the reasons?
1: Mm. This is such a great question and this is a conversation i have a lot with people who live here you know like on the instagram feeds it looks so amazing to live in the jungle right yes and it's challenging it's intense the rains rain, rain. <laughs> so okay. intensely that we lose wi-fi <laughs> you know we're living in a developed country a developing country and so there's challenges, the roads, right? But the, these lack of infrastructures are simultaneously challenging and what makes it mm. a right?
0: So there are certain uh, challenges that you have to endure also. And is it more expensive than other places? Is finance could to be a barrier?
1: Hmm. Speaking specifically to, so it's not even specifically Nosara that's a blue zone. It's the whole Guanacaste region, which is a large part of Costa Rica. And so Nosara specifically is expensive because there's so many expats here and a lot of real estate and business build out and a desirable uh, location. Um, but there are certainly other parts of Guanacaste that you could live in for much less. Mm. And and again, you can live on the land and not need to go buy the acai bowls and the fancy dinners and the fancy boutique clothing, you know. And so, you know, it's your choice. You know, Costa Rica is a pricier country. But it, but what you're paying for is the fact that I get to have a view of the jungle here yeah. while I'm home with you, you know.
0: Yeah. It, is, it is such a beautiful place uh, to live. So thank you for elaborating on on this Blue Zone Dynamics. Another question I have, so you certainly have wisdom within the field of Kundalini and embodiment. What is the source of your wisdom? What teachers have inspired you along the way?
1: Mm. Ah. So in the Kundalini realm, one of my major, major mentors, and may she rest in peace, she passed away suddenly last year from a pulmonary embolism, but her name is Guru Jagat. And she's based in Venice, California, and has studios throughout the world and an online studio. And what I love about her is she started practicing Kundalini from a very young age, like late teens, early 20s. She was clearly following her Dharma. And what I love about her is she takes a practice that can sometimes feel inaccessible, you know, and makes it real and relatable. And doesn't use all this fancy Sanskrit jargon and all of this, you know, like she takes it and she delivers it in a way that's relatable. And she published a book a few years ago and, and made an effort to actually have it sold in Walmarts because she said, I want everyone to buy this book. I want everyone to have access to this book. And I really set the intention to follow in her footsteps of taking a practice that's ancient and sometimes intimidating and having it be accessible to everybody.
0: That's that's beautiful. You mentioned Sanskrit. Why is Sanskrit such a spiritual language?
1: Sanskrit is the ancient sacred language of India. Of of Hindu and India is the birthplace of yoga, you know. And so, uh, a lot of our poses are, you know, in Sanskrit names. We have the eight limbs of yoga. This is all in Sanskrit. And Sanskrit's beautiful. And I think it's valuable to hold that language as sacred, you know, it holds the wisdom, the vibration of the yogic practices. And it's really important for me when I'm teaching a class or offering something that I also include English so that more people can understand it and feel like they can relate
0: to it. Mm, so it's the old Hindu language where yoga was born. Yeah, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. And who, who are other teachers that have inspired you?
1: So another teacher I absolutely love, his name is Guru Singh and he's, he's an elder. You know He's a sage in the community. I think he's maybe even close to 80, actually. But he has such a light and such a playful energy and such a joy that emanates from him. And I discovered him. I was at a yoga festival and I found one of his books, Buried Treasures. And it was just a beautiful example of synchronicity of just him speaking to me through this book that I found on a bookshelf. And then years later... Uh, I ended up taking an online training with him and that's how I received my Kundalini teacher training. And what I love about him is he's so gentle and so calm and so nurturing. And so he holds the power of this practice in a very gentle embodied and very wise wise way and when I practice with him I can really feel that I'm accessing the golden chain of teachers from thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago
0: Mm. because you mentioned two gurus is guru actually a name uh, that you need to receive from some other gurus or can you pretend Mm. to be a guru like what (laughs) (laughs) More about that.
1: Ah, uh, that's a great question, and I think it's a controversial topic, especially in this day and age of cultural appropriation of pedestalizing people and and so guru for both guru Jagat and guru Singh were their given names. You know, a lot of times when people um, inherit the Sikh tradition or become Kundalini teachers, they receive a spiritual name. So guru, in Sanskrit, means from darkness to light. Gu is darkness. Ru is light. And so if we take away the story and the uh, stigma of what guru actually means and just look at what it actually means, it means that which guides us from darkness to light. And so you are your own guru, right? You can, and again, sovereignty, you can guide yourself from darkness.
0: I'm but happy, I'm happy uh, you tell me that because I didn't know the meaning of guru. Of course, mm. I know the word guru, but I actually never thought about it before. So do you also have a non-guru a teacher that has inspired you or that doesn't include guru in the name? Mm.
1: So there's there's a woman named Brett Larkin, and I really enjoy her. And she's actually um, who I also did my uh, Kundalini training with. Her and Guru Singh co-created this program together. And what I love about Brett is she's well-versed in so many other styles of yoga, restorative, hatha, and nidra. And so her, her her bank of knowledge is so vast. And she has a very wide network. She's got like half a million followers on YouTube. She's got an online platform. And she takes, again, a practice that can feel intimidating. And because she's got a wide network, um, audience she delivers kundalini in a way that's super down to earth again super accessible and she offers practices on youtube that are like 10 minutes five minutes you know traditionally kundalini practices especially if i follow them with guru jagat or guru singh these are 90 minute traditional kriyas and so what i like about brett and what i infuse into my own offerings is short and efficient potent practices 10 minutes
0: so Brett makes it accessible for, for busy people that have a little bit less time.
1: Totally, yeah. Okay. And a lot of her offerings are, you can find them on YouTube. And so she's a big inspiration for me.
0: Thank you for sharing. I will um, add these teachers to the to the podcast. When looking back at your life, it seems that movement is a theme. You've moved geographically. You've moved careers from a nurse to a yoga studio to a teacher in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. So if people that are listening, if they want to make a move in their life, if they want to, want to transform to a next version of themselves, what are your learnings that you have had or your recommendations for making a move?
1: Mm, that's a great, great, great question. So if we look at the energetics of emotion, and of course, emotion is energy in motion, right? And emotion leads to action, right? Which is that move or that career jump or that physical move. We have low-frequency emotions and high-frequency emotions. Now, I'm not saying good and bad. I'm saying low-frequency and high-frequency. And the catalyst emotion that switches us from low to high-frequency is courage. And so, like I said before, the best way to do something is to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And so these (laughs) these lower-frequency emotions are shame, guilt, resentment, Anger, jealousy, right? Again, they're not bad, but they're lower frequency. And when we reside in these emotions, it's going to be really difficult to do something difficult, right? So if we can muster up the courage, which is an emotion, it switches us to those higher frequency emotions. We gain momentum. And so I would say the two most important things to making moves, whether it's energetically or emotionally or physically, is to cultivate a sense of safety in your body first. This is rewiring and down-regulating your, your nervous system, connecting to your root. Because if we're going to move, we got to feel safe enough to do so. right? So it's using breathwork practices, meditative practices, to feel safe in your body. From that stance of safety, do it. Muster up courage, don't overthink it. Let the body lead, let spirit lead and do it. And know that the simple act of doing, the simple act of courage will pop you into higher frequency emotions of bliss, compassion, joy, you know, unconditional love. And then the machine feeds itself.
0: That's, That's beautiful. So first of all, you need safety in your own body to make a move. And then courage is important, as you mentioned. The best way to do something is to do it. I think that makes a lot of sense. That sometimes people have a barrier of like taking the the step. Mm-hmm. And how do you perceive risks? Because you've made a move. How how did you? Because sometimes people experience risks. How? What's your view on risks? It's
1: mm, a great question too. So when I think of the word risk, I feel like that um, story comes from the head brain. Again, head brain's is great, it's analytical, it's rational, it's polarized. And so the head brain is, is the one that's calculating risk, pros versus cons. So when we are moving from that space, it's not fully embodied. Now, the brain is great, it helps us make those lists, but how do we actually do the thing from our body? And the body realizes that risk is simply a story.
0: I think that's uh, again a beautiful explanation because we can overestimate risks, yeah? but if you connect to your body, you feel safe. You can make a move. Well, mm. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot actually uh, from it, and mm. I have this idea in my mind to do more research to blue zones. I still yeah. want to be in Japan, and mm-hmm. I even um, I was not so aware that you're living in a blue zone. So that's really really inspiring. Before. Mm the podcast is there something uh, that you want to share uh, with the listeners to uh, yeah as a last word mm,
1: yeah i feel so grateful to be able to just disseminate what i'm passionate about and and to just spread the seedlings of embodiment virtually over the space you know and i know that a lot of the people that listen to this podcast have really similar interests as you and i travel entrepreneurship just being just being a more magnetic person so you can have a greater impact, you know, and I fully support that. And I feel inspired to offer every listener here a discovery call with me. And that looks like we just meet over zoom for half an hour and really just dive into how can I support you? What's your relationship with your body and technology and how can we move to a space of deeper embodiment? So that's really something I'd love to offer listeners today whether it's you know a month or three months from now and they're listening to the podcast it's something i'd love to offer
0: well thank you very much for these uh final words and people thank you for listening see you soon and um until mm-hmm. we meet again
1: until we meet again jasper on the bench of life thank <laughs> you so much brother
0: Bye bye